Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Being Jewish has always been complicated. Since the destruction of the ancient Jewish state 2,000 years ago, we have always been a minority, at times embraced, often persecuted. This minority status has compelled us to figure out how to negotiate Jewish belief and practice within the dynamic of the broader society. It can be confusing, complicated, and exhilarating. Here with me today to discuss the ways Jews negotiate their identities in modern America is Dr. Yuda Kurtzer, the founder and president of the Shalom Hartman Institute North America and host of the Identity Crisis podcast. He's also the author of Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past, and co-editor of the New Jewish Canon. Yuda, welcome to In These Times. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very eager to uh, talk to you. You're such a prolific uh, author, a deep thinker, one of the most astute observers of the Jewish community. You're the president of the Hartman Institute of North America. It is a uh, organization devoted to Jewish learning across the religious spectrum. How are you doing? What are you seeing? You know, the last couple of years have been quite hard for our business model, but quite good for the business. Um, until the pandemic hit, our work across North America was premised on pulling together people in person. It was very hard to do that work with actual gatherings for the last two years. But we also watched around the world as the pandemic was such an incredible referendum on the quality of our leadership. And leaders went in search of the kinds of things that are hard to grasp, like wisdom and knowledge, and they came to Hartman. So we actually saw a huge increase in curiosity by American Jews and American Jewish leaders for real tools, knowledge-based tools, to, to help lead their communities through these difficult times. You wrote a book a while ago called The New Jewish Canon, uh, where you uh, reviewed uh, the most significant Jewish ideas and debates of the past two generations. Tell us about that. What, in your view, are the most significant ideas of our generation in Jewish affairs. So this book that Dr. Claire Sufren and I put together, which took about a little over five years to execute, we ultimately organized the book around a couple of big ideas, a couple of big questions. One was about Jewish politics in the public square. To me, that feels like one of the central ideas of our time as a Jewish people, the combination of who American Jews have become in America and the ways that the state of Israel appears on the world stage means that how Jews show up in the public square is actually a contribution that Jews of the today are making to Jewish history, which is totally different than how Jews showed up in the world previously. Uh, another big theme was around history and memory, all of the ways in which, especially the memory of the Holocaust, the Shoah, continues to be a defining question or a defining idea of contemporary Judaism and that it's being kind of litigated in public today. So any contribution that we write about what does Jewish history and Jewish memory mean feels like the production of a new kind of knowledge. For the Jewish people, we wrote about religion and religiosity, to use Martin Buber's distinction, the ways that Jewish communal life is organized into institutions and yet it also tries to grasp at something holy or essential and the tension between those. And I think the fourth was around identity, which I would say I think for all of us American Jews has become such a powerful buzzword over the last 40 years precisely because there's so much identity uncertainty. American Jews are not totally sure who we are. And the conversation about identity emerges from a place of uncertainty 
American Jews imitate the larger trends of the American public. That's a kind of evidence of a successful story of assimilation. All of the same trends around global polarization, which are very intense in America, and the way that it maps in America, which is partisanship, are now just endemic to Jewish communal life. It's like one of these things that's good news and bad news. It means that you're kind of importing toxins into Judaism and to Jewish communal discourse. On the other hand, it's witness to the fact that American Jews can act like other Americans, as opposed to being like so much of our history, American Jews are kind of orthogonal to what was taking place in public. You hope that the change in a regime doesn't implicate you, that people don't turn it into anti-Semitism, but you don't get to fully participate in the political culture. But I do think that we are just playing out some of the worst dynamics and behaviors of American life inside Jewish institutional life, and it concerns me deeply. You know, you said the good news is that it shows that American Jews can be just like everybody else. I'm a reform rabbi. I oversee a large and historic liberal synagogue. My concern is actually the opposite with many liberal Jews, which is it's difficult for them to see the distinctiveness of Judaism. They are mostly thinking and behaving like everyone else. And our biggest challenge, and it's something I work on all the time, is to emphasize uh, Jewish distinctiveness. It's not only that we value what the tradition calls ahavata briot, you know, uh, love of all humanity, but ahavat Yisrael, love of the Jewish people, is also a central uh, Jewish obligation. I find that at least with respect to most of American Judaism, certainly much of the American Jewish world outside of the Orthodox movement, this element of Jewish distinctiveness is not only difficult for liberal Jews to grasp, but also seems at odds, at variance philosophically with the spirit of the times. So help us understand that. Another word that we might use in this context is counterculturals. And to what extent do Jews require some sort of countercultural identity in order to be able to preserve our distinctiveness, in order to be able to thrive through a period of time in which that's not cultivated by the environment that we're in? I think the problem we have here is much bigger than the contemporary moment. You know, the essential project for Jews in the 20th century was assimilation. That became, by the end of the 20th century, a bad word. But for most of the 20th century, it wasn't a bad word. Assimilation is not inherently a bad thing. It means trying to make it possible to live and to thrive within a larger civilization. I just think many of us woke up by the end of the 20th century and said, holy cow, assimilation went from being an active project that we wanted to a threat to Jewish identity. And I think that partly happened because I don't think Jews in the early 20th century thought it would work. <laughs> you assumed that those features of countercultural identity would linger, you would never be able to truly jettison your Jewish identity, your Jewish community, your sense of Jewish family, but hopefully you'd be able to at least thrive economically and politically within this culture. I think it has just exceeded beyond our expectations. And it's no surprise that many of us who identify deeply as liberal in all senses of the word are now wondering whether the trade-off of liberalism for the cost of our own identity was actually worth it. It's a big, it feels like a big, big referendum for the last 150 years. If you know a little bit of history of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue and Rabbi Wise, much of the reform movement, including uh, this synagogue, in deference to the challenges of American Jewry back in the early and mid-20th century to assimilate, as you say, to become part of American society, uh, they made all kinds of concessions, including moving Shabbat services to Sunday because Jews needed to work and they felt that it was better 
if uh, they at least offered uh, services on the day of rest as America understood it. So we're now, say, three generations or so beyond, or even four generations, say, even a century beyond the mass immigration, or three generations beyond the Holocaust. Uh, American Jews are settled, they're comfortable, they're by and large successful, they're desirable partners, business partners, and marital partners in American life. You said that we still are not certain of who we are. Do you feel that this is part of it, that we're kind of ambivalent about completely joining American society, but at the same time rediscovering our Jewish particularism and ensconcing ourselves emotionally and intellectually within the embrace of the Jewish people? I think the ambivalence that you and I are describing is is evidence of the fact that you and I are really, really a unique minority. <laughs> I think that for most American Jews who are ensconced in their Americanness, it is not with the kind of ambivalence that you and I are talking about. It's actually the reason why you and I have our ambivalence is because the majority discourse by American Jews doesn't even, I'm not sure they even know that there's some tension between their Jewish particular commitments and our American commitments. And I think people like you and me look around and say, are there enough of us who feel ambivalent about the sense of loss for us to constitute something that represents something serious that will have endurance. You have an overwhelming majority of American Jews who have already become assimilated Americans for whom their Jewishness may or may not be a secondary interest at best. And then you have a growing minority of American Jews who have negotiated differently, I would say, the dance with assimilation. Those are the insular communities, which are actually growing. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox communities are also negotiating assimilation. They've just set the boundary quite differently. I think folks like me and you look around and say, for those of us who kind of want both, <laughs> who want to have the deep particularism of Jews who know that they're Jewish and for whom their Jewishness is inextinguishable, we want that, but we don't really want to trade all of the accomplishments that we've made in terms of our engagement with larger American secular culture. We don't want to give up on elite education. We don't want to give up on all of these accomplishments or political success. I think that's what creates this strangeness that folks like you and me find ourselves in. And can we have both? And if so, where do we draw the boundaries? I think it's fair to say that neither of us would want the real trades that would come with living in a society in which our Jewishness was reinforced by the public. What I mean by that is the breakthrough for American Jews around intermarriage was not that American Jews are the first civilization of Jews who wanted to intermarry. The breakthrough for American Jews around intermarriage was that we found a society that was really hospitable to us and a whole bunch of non-Jews who were perfectly comfortable were very happy to marry Jews. So would you want the trade? <laughs> Would you want a little bit more structural anti-Semitism because it would make us feel that Jewishness was secure? I think probably the answer is no. Would we barter away the status we've managed to achieve in America to be a little bit more on the outside so that our sense of corporate political Jewish identity was more secured? No, I don't think so. So I think we have to name that, that we chose this environment in which to thrive. And now the burden sits upon us to say, what does thriving look like? for American Jewish identity within a hospitable context. That's a great problem to have. I agree. It's a great problem to have and in many ways unprecedented in the history of the exile or the diaspora at least. And from that perspective, America is unique. Uh, 
the historical experiences of American Jews are unique. So help us negotiate that. We might have 2,500 souls who are members of this congregation. What should they be hearing from their rabbis in terms of negotiating both their full embrace in American society without losing their Jewish particular identity and embrace within the Jewish community? Well, one thing is, whenever we Jews look to figure out the present, we look in the past to figure out what are the templates that were helpful to us. The texts that I've been drawn to that have been really useful to me are thinking about all of the ways in which rabbinic Judaism, which we are all the inheritors of, is actually a Roman Empire text. It's a text that emerged from a time in Jewish history when Jews are negotiating in many ways the same questions. What does it look like to want to be part of the societies that we're in, to want to benefit from all of the gifts of the Roman Empire, which are hard to talk about Jewishly because the Romans destroyed the temple, but the rabbis do. They talk about the bridges and the aqueducts and all the things that they benefited from living in the heart of ancient civilization and trying at the same time to articulate a proud Jewish identity. And the term that I hear oftentimes in the rabbinic literature itself, and then you hear it also from later Jewish thinkers, is a term about confidence. What is it that the Jewish people need in America that would represent Jewish self-confidence? To not view America as a steamroller of assimilation, to not say to ourselves, how do we withstand all of these pressures, but to articulate a positive and serious Jewish identity that says, no, given the gifts of abundance that we find ourselves in, how do we speak proudly about our heritage as something that fuels us with deep wisdom on ethics and on an unapologetic, enlightened language of faith, on a serious commitment to community as something that's not regressive, right? All peoples on earth have communities. It's only us Jews who are ambivalent that talking too much about loving our fellow people is ethnocentrism. So it's about turning this whole conversation into a framework for Jewish self-confidence in America and then hoping that others around us will be more enchanted by that self-confidence as opposed to what we really see, which is we're kind of chasing with our anxiety, hoping that people will want to latch on to something that doesn't feel that compelling. We have a tendency nowadays in American society and in the Jewish community to define ourselves narrowly and to overly restrict the description of liberal. I've always found that liberalism is even more than a set of principles, it's a mindset. It's, a, it's an open, tolerant mindset that seeks debate, looks to discover truth, knowing that truth is never fully discoverable, but that we can get closer through the process of give and take and debate. And from that perspective, at least, Judaism is highly liberal. You and I are liberals. That's how we see ourselves. And still, you said that you think that we're in the minority amongst American Jews who think about and worry about the tension between universal values and particularistic Jewish values, and that most American Jews don't even consider that. They consider themselves part of society that has some kind of Jewish identity element to it. What we find with the Israelis is even the most secularized Israelis, they have this very powerful concept of Jewish peoplehood in their identity. It's central to their identity because of uh, simply being raised and growing up in the Jewish state. So they bring a sense of Jewish peoplehood to American Jewry. And American Jews actually look at Judaism and the Jewish community from a religious perspective that is often not present from the Israeli side. Do you think that 
these two experiences make it difficult for American Jews to relate to Israel and for Israelis to relate to American Jews? I wrote a piece a couple years ago in The New Republic, which did a whole issue on the divide between America and Israel and American Jews and Israel. And what I tried to argue in that piece is that when we look at the divide between American Jews and Israel, it cannot be reduced to a single cause. I think some of what you characterized is a part of it. We understand belonging to the Jewish people very differently. I'll ramp up liberalism a little bit. Liberalism is not, to me, just a commitment to liberal values or pluralism. It's about the belief that fundamentally our societies should be organized towards individual liberty, towards the thriving of the individual. I think that's true in America. I think it's less true in Israel. I think Israel is just a fundamentally less liberal society. It's much more oriented towards the nation. It's not just this is less liberal than the other, which is true. It's that our societies are organized towards a different premise and our interpretations of Judaism, as you suggested, have evolved very differently. American Judaism is organized around liberalism to the extent that Judaism provides tools for individual thriving, people make use of it. (laughs) In Israel, it's the cultural vocabulary of a country. So that's one, there's so many other divides. We are in the West, Israel is in the Middle East, we speak different languages, we face different political climates and circumstances. The significant others for Jews in America are very different than the significant others for Jews in Israel who are Palestinians. In fact, That's one of the great divides is that our significant others, aka non-Jews, are basically our friends, neighbors, and loved ones. In Israel, the non-Jewish significant other to Israeli Jews tend to be constructed as enemies. There's so much going on in the divide between us, and it's no surprise that it's very hard to build a culture of a trusting and loving relationship over multiple generations between Jews who are growing up in one cultural environment and Jews who are growing up in the second. I think a lot of people look to build lives that are not rooted in tension. And when you talk about what it means to be an American Jew who stays deeply in relationship to the state of Israel, that is to invite yourself to live a life of some productive tension. I find it thrilling. I find that like knowing that there are Jews in a different part of the world who are pursuing a different kind of destiny of the Jewish people from which I can learn, that I can also dissent from periodically. And it sharpens my own Judaism, and it's also good for the Jewish people. That's complex and rich and tense. It shouldn't be surprising to us that a lot of Jews are like, yeah, I will just choose the more orderly lane (laughs) in which I can live my personal and human commitments. Yeah, it's really fascinating that you say that because, of course, all of Judaism is about creative tension. It's about pushing the envelope. You know, a serene Jew, I always look with suspicion about people who who look for serenity. It's an un-Jewish impulse. And even the American founders defined the pursuit of happiness rather than the achievement of happiness. And they realized, and certainly Jews can resonate this, for sure Jews believe this. If we ever found happiness, we'd be miserable. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the way I like to put that is that if you achieve your dreams in your own lifetime, you didn't dream big enough. (laughs) I'd like to ask you about a few uh, contemporary issues. First of all, what are your views about Yeshiva University and the LGBTQ club that has been litigated in the courts, the Supreme Court, where it stands now, I understand, is that the Supreme Court rejected so far the petition until all of the lower court options are exhausted. I understand that Yeshiva University's claim to exclude the LGBTQ club 
is that their argument is they fundamentally are a religious institution, not an educational institution in receiving public funds. And so it's a question of freedom of religion. But even beyond the legal issue, what matters to most American Jews is the social communal issue. Do you think their position, their fundamental position to exclude uh, a gay and lesbian club is the right place to be in modern times? I've been on record on this. In fact, if I can give a plug, we did a podcast, our Identity Crisis podcast with Rabbi Steve Greenberg and with Miriam Kabakoff, who are founders of an organization called Eshel. And it was very important to me to talk to modern Orthodox Jews. Both Greenberg and Kabakoff are themselves alumni of Yeshiva University. Uh, and really, it's a very strong case as to what's wrong with this whole story, including what they made very clear, which is you can decide that there's no pride club, but it is not the same as acknowledging that you have gay students. In other words, Yeshiva University seems very committed to not allowing any infrastructure for Jewish students to be out on campus. But they themselves acknowledge that, you know, we love our gay students. It winds up having the effect of trying to keep Orthodox kids closeted. I think ultimately the case will wind its way through the courts and it will probably reach the Supreme Court where you'll have a 6-3 ruling in favor of Yeshiva University because that's just the makeup of the current court. It was very clear in Alito's dissent against sending it back to the lower court. He was ready to overturn the lower court's decision. But that's the way the wind is blowing in American conservatism is towards religious institutions and their right of self-determination, which is actually a phrase Yeshiva University used in one of its most recent statements. My argument to Yeshiva University is why make this the way in which Orthodox Judaism shows up in America. If you actually genuinely believe that you want to love and respect your gay students, you can parse the distinction between, do we think that this is halachically okay for someone to have gay sex? You can say, we won't ordain somebody out of the Yeshiva University rabbinical school who is a known violator of Jewish law. You can make that argument, but you're talking about two undergraduate colleges where you know you have gay students and where they're seeking the right to be recognized as an affinity group. I'm frustrated that they don't make those distinctions and that they're insisting that to be a religious institution is to not allow a secular pride club to exist on their campus. I'm frustrated by the fact that they characterize hostility to LGBTQ people as endemic to religious faith in Judaism. I think that's wrong. And I think it's ultimately a choice of how a Orthodox institution wants to show up in the American public square. When I was talking to my kids about this case, teenagers, I just said in passing, I made reference to the case as yeshiva versus pride, because that's what it's going to be called. <laughs> and my kids gasped because... Do we as Jews want America to have on its books a legal precedent that establishes that the Jewish religion opposes a pride club? It feels to me bad for America and bad for the brand of Judaism. So it's one of these weird cases of I think they probably can win in court. They can be, quote unquote, right as the American legal system would imagine to be. I just would really hope that they choose an alternative path. What do you think it says about modern orthodoxy. Yeshiva University is the flagship institution of modern orthodoxy. I've always looked at that element of world Jewry as especially important because its motto is Torah Umada. We're going to embrace all the values of Torah as we understand them, and we are going to embrace higher education. And so what happens at, in the modern orthodox community, I always found to be especially uh, important for the world Jewish community, because they are trying to do what 
we've spoken about that the real tension is in the modern Orthodox community because they really do put halacha at the center of their decision-making process. The conservative movement may try to do that, but most of their congregants look like uh, Reformed Jews. What do you think this decision says about modern orthodoxy, if anything? I think it's very generous to read modern orthodoxy in general as driven by halacha. I think there are plenty of Orthodox rabbis who I see as driven primarily by Jewish law, who placed, as you said, Jewish law at the center. But modern Orthodoxy is also an American Jewish denomination within an American Jewish evolving religious landscape. One of the strongest forces that I think motivates modern Orthodoxy is looking to its left at what it perceives as being the quote-unquote failings of conservative and reform Judaism, and it's their laxity around social and moral and religious trends. I don't think this is a purely halakha-driven decision. I think it's in many ways a sociologically-driven decision. Look, if you wanted to read history a certain way, which I don't, the more egalitarian the liberal denominations became, the less adherence they held on to. The more assimilated the liberal denominations became with liberal values, the less compelling they were to their adherence. So I think modern orthodoxy is also looking there and saying, do we want to follow the path that our liberal brethren took, or do we want to stick with a different countercultural mode? So obviously Jewish law is a piece of this. I think those kind of sociological decisions are a piece of this. I think the culture wars are a piece of this. There's a growing voice in American modern and centrist orthodoxy that views the culture wars, especially around sexuality, as being essential for orthodoxy to remain or to be a kind of conservative, lowercase conservative movement. I think all of those are forces at work. And I, I from the outside, can't fully parse which of those is driving this kind of decision making. But the upshot, in your view, is that it's dragging the modern Orthodox community more to the right, more conservative on social issues as well as Jewish issues? What's confusing about it is that you're talking about a case in which it's the students at Yeshiva University, Yeshiva College and Stern College, who are themselves want to be Orthodox in Yeshiva University and queer. <laughs> I don't know what's pulling in what direction but it's an institutional desire to not allow those students to kind of shape that agenda. So I, I think in the long run, if Yeshiva University holds this course and ultimately gives to the Alito court its own identity as affirming that story in America, yeah, of course it pulls modern orthodoxy rightward. And the question will be, how many people does it take with them and how many people do they lose as a result? If I can uh, ask you to journey with me a, more to the right, in the Jewish community. Recently, uh, there's been a growing controversy and there was a very long expose in the New York Times about the Haredi ultra-Orthodox schools and how they're taking public money and not educating their students on the basics, on the very basics. Many of them graduate not knowing how to read, knowing nothing about American history, very little uh, math and science skills. What do you make of that? I feel a little bit less exercised by the legal question. I think it's true. If you take public funds, you have to abide by public norms. And then when people call you out for it, you can't simply say anti-Semitism. I think even if these yeshivot were not taking public funds and were failing to educate their children in the basics of English and math, I think we'd have a reason to be upset about it because it feels like a failure to live 
within civilization and a failure to give your children a chance to thrive and to succeed, this is all relatively new, right? An ideology of that kind of, not just otherness, right? Ultra-Orthodox Jews were other from the societies they were in for a long time, but the willingness to say, no, no, we want to be fully present, we want to be political forces in our society, and we want to not be held accountable by the rules and norms of the social order, that's pretty new. I just want to be sure that when we respond to this with anger and with frustration about what are the responsibilities that parents have to children and communities have to children, that we do so from a place of recognizing that this is really bad for the children. I think that's what this is fundamentally about. I think that what is motivating a lot of this of the anger and response by American Jews is more embarrassment. We Jews look bad because those who are fellow seem to be acting in ways that embarrass us. Being embarrassed by other Jews is not a great driver for activism. It it may be a reflection that we still feel some bonds of peoplehood, but it pulls us into a bad place. There's a different version of feeling responsible for the actions of other Jews, which is motivated by positive attachment, a sense of responsibility, a sense of love, a sense of affinity. So I just want to make sure that our activism on this is motivated by positive attachment as opposed to just fear of being implicated by it. As you might recall, I I have done outreach to the Haredi community. I wrote a book with an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, Yosef Reinman. Both of us wanted to have the opportunity to do what's called keruv, bridging the the gaps between different elements of the Jewish community. And this was 20 years ago, but I still remember this vividly. We were very happy. Rabbi Reinman was very happy until about the second of 18 appearances on the book tour where the ultra-Orthodox community woke up and banned him from participating in in the rest of the book tour and essentially uh, prohibited any ultra-Orthodox Jew from buying the book. I think that was the last prominent effort in the American Jewish community to do this kind of keru, this kind of bridging action between Haredi Jews and everyone else. Uh, but I believe in that. I, I'm glad you mentioned it because I do feel that we are all part of the totality of the Jewish people and we have mutual obligations to each other. And that's, that's the place of my pain. It's not a place of embarrassment. Their response to modernity is so extreme. It's an effort to shut everything off because when you look at Jewish history and Jewish philosophy and just the feel of our tradition, we always sought knowledge and we sought secular knowledge too. Scientific knowledge was a plus. It was something that we encouraged, even the most orthodox of us, to see now that There's an element in the Jewish community whose response to modernity is to shut everything off, not to let anything penetrate through, to me is deeply disappointing, and it shows that our efforts at outreach here are not working. There's a piece of my heart that tries to be very generous to the Haredi mindset. It's obviously hard for me. It's not my choices. Ultra-Orthodox Jews operate with two myths. I don't mean myths in the sense of not being true. Two big stories of their own beleagueredness and their own fear of disappearance. One of them is from the Shoah, from the Holocaust, where their communities were absolutely decimated and have spent the last 70 years trying to simply reconstitute what was lost. And the second is a feeling, because of the widespread ways in which we, quote unquote, enlightened Jews, 
play out our assimilation that their worldview, the decision to be somewhat insular, which has basically been taken away from them by the Shoah, is beleaguered too. Like, why don't I get to also have the self-determination of my religious and political and economic choices? The challenge is that we live together in the same society, and the conditions under which ultra-Orthodox Jews are living are ones that are different than they faced 70 years ago. And so we want them to just make the basic commitment to our societies. But I will say the things that have been most inspiring to me, I appreciate your example of the book that you wrote, but there are wonderful quiet efforts. And if we're more attuned towards when there is quiet outreach and less performative, quiet outreach from ultra-Orthodox Jews, curiosity, interest in building relationships, are we prepared to be in the other end? And, and I think we always have to be on the lookout for means of building bridges between Jews. Dr. Kurtzer, I want to thank you very much for giving us this time. Thank you. Shana Tova. My discussion with Dr. Kurtzer was fascinating and engaging for me. It's the kind of exchange that we rabbis and Jewish thinkers love. The central theme that Yuda and I discussed was one of Jewish identity. The key issue for American Jews is how to respond to the times in which we live, how to express and develop Jewish values, how to sustain the existence and viability of Judaism and the Jewish people, while at the same time partaking of and contributing to all the many gifts of modernity, how to contribute to the world without losing our Jewishness, how to continue to advance Jewish values to infuse them with life-giving new ideas while still staying connected to the root. This has always been among the central challenges of Judaism. Our survival can be attributed in part to our miraculous ability to sustain the essence of Judaism while absorbing whatever concepts and ideas the world around us had to offer that advanced the human condition. The genius of Judaism was as the rabbis of old put it, at all times, be like a reed in the river, flexible enough to bend with the currents, but not too flexible as to be washed away by the tide. Liberal reformed Jews responded to modernity by fully embracing the emancipation. We reformed Judaism. We lifted the mandate of halakha, Jewish law, believing that it would still have a voice in our decision-making, but not a veto. Consistent with the spirit of the times, we interpreted Judaism as permitting personal autonomy and gender equality. If you wanted to keep kosher, that was your personal decision. Slightly less liberal conservative Jews thought we had gone too far, that we vested too much authority in personal autonomy, and we had lost the binding, commanding sense of Jewish tradition. Thus, the conservative movement also fully embraced modernity but sought to navigate the commanding nature of Jewish law and the world at large by preserving halakha, but interpreting Jewish law in the most liberal ways possible. All of orthodoxy today upholds halakha, Jewish law, as supreme. All streams of orthodoxy interpret Jewish law much more conservatively than the non-orthodox movements. But broadly speaking, there are two approaches to engaging modernity. For what we call today modern orthodoxy, their belief is captured in the slogan Torah Umada, both Torah and secular learning. Thus, the issue of the LGBT club at Yeshiva University is difficult and complicated for them. On the one hand, modern sensibilities demand sexual and gender equality and dignity. It seems inconceivable to liberal Jews that we would tolerate discrimination based on sexual preference. And yet, their understanding of Jewish law is that it insists upon heterosexuality. My guess, at least my hope, 
is that eventually Yeshiva University will resolve this issue in favor of recognizing the LGBT club, even if the Supreme Court rules in their favor, because these are standards so universally accepted in contemporary society that it will not be possible for Yeshiva to embrace both Torah and secular learning, both Jewish law and contemporary sensibilities, while denying standards that are so widely embraced. So my instinct is that eventually they will find a halachically acceptable way to allow gay students to be recognized on campus. The second broad approach of orthodoxy to modernity is ultra-orthodoxy. We often describe these movements as Haredi, God-fearing. Their response to the outside world is to do everything they possibly can to keep it out of their homes, schools, and daily lives. Many consider secular knowledge and democratic values a threat. Individual autonomy, personal freedom, these are not concepts they studied or embraced. Many, but not all, ultra-Orthodox homes forbid computers, televisions, and any book that is not authorized by rabbinical authorities. That explains the phenomenon of students in Haredi schools who may graduate without knowing how to read English, have no math or science skills, and broadly speaking, separate themselves from the outside world. They feel that all they need to know is enough Judaism to assume their role in Haredi communal life. For both the modern Orthodox Yeshiva University and the ultra-Orthodox Yeshivas, the problem is, first, by taking public money, you must commit to fulfilling general standards. And second, if you're running a school, there are educational mandates that require minimal knowledge. Walling yourself off completely from the outside world is impossible. After I completed my book, One People, Two Worlds, with Haredi Rabbi Yosef Reinman, we discovered that despite the ban proclaimed by ultra-Orthodox authorities, thousands of Orthodox Jews bought the book, but did it in secret. So perhaps some Haredi Jews listened to this podcast. If so, I'd be delighted. Still, since most of our listeners are non-Orthodox, my message to you is to challenge you to stay on the Jewish path. It is a really critical challenge. Can you fully partake in the American experience and at the same time remain fully Jewish in your thinking, in your practice, and in transmitting Judaism to your posterity. Avoid burying Judaism under some bland, white-bread impulse of homogenized sameness. What is so exciting about being like everyone else? Being just like everyone else is contrary to the Jewish spirit. We are a small, stubborn, stiff-necked, staunch, stout, strong-willed people. It's part of our charm. Until next time, this is In These Times.